Hello, and welcome to In Conversation With, a podcast from The Lancet Microbe. It is June 2023, and I am Elena Dravecchia. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Hannah Ehrlich, a postdoc at the One Health Institute of the University of California, Davis. We will be talking about her study, tracking antimalarial drug resistance using mosquito blood meals, a cross-sectional study, which was part of her PhD at Yale University's School of Public Health with Dr. Sunlu Parikh's team. We also have a French edition of the podcast on this study. If you are interested, please listen to our conversation with Dr. Fabrice Sommet. Hi, Hannah. Thank you very much for joining us today. Before we talk specifically about your study, could you set the scene by briefly telling us about the challenges of antimalarial drug resistance and how it is affecting efforts to control malaria, particularly in Africa? Sure. I'll start by saying thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Yeah, so this work focuses on malaria, which for many of our listeners, we already know that malaria is still a major contributor to infectious diseases worldwide and to deaths caused by infectious diseases, particularly in young children in sub-Saharan Africa. Over the past few decades, we've made really huge strides in controlling malaria, but that progress has stalled in recent years, and that that's been exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. One of the main tools that we have to control malaria, both to prevent it and to treat it, is to use antimalarial drugs. However, drug resistance is a real and recurring challenge in malaria elimination. And drug resistance is actually developed with every single pharmaceutical drug that we've deployed to date. And that spread of drug resistance has led to the retirement of multiple drugs that were previously used at global scales. The early 2000s was a real game changer when it came to treating malaria, particularly because we moved from monotherapies to combination therapies, in large part thanks to the efforts in the pharmaceutical world with treating HIV and TB. So we now use these combination therapies called artemisinin combination therapies, artemisinin-based combination therapies, or ACTs. And these are composed of multiple drugs, but they always include an artemisinin derivative, which is an extremely fast-acting, potent drug derived from plants. Um, And that drug is combined with a partner drug, which has a longer half-life, and in that way you can have multiple different ways to try to clear parasites. And that also helps prevent the development or the evolution of resistance to those drugs. Resistance has developed to artemisinin mm. actually in the, around 2006 in Southeast Asia, and resistance really spread across that entire subregion. For the majority of the, the time that we were working on this study that we're about to discuss, resistance to artemisinin was only a theoretical risk or a major but was still a major concern. And then that changed in in 2021 when two landmark studies in Uganda and Rwanda documented the first cases of artemisinin resistance on the subcontinent. Um, And in addition to that, resistance to the partner drugs, so the other drugs used with antimalarial, used with ACTs, is already pretty widespread across the continent. And the reason that we're really concerned about this is because artemisinin is the most widely efficacious antimalarial, and there's no immediately available alternative. So it's really important that we try to maintain its efficacy, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, where the vast majority of cases and deaths occur due to malaria. 
And by vast majority, we're talking like over 95%. Right. Thank you for this, that very comprehensive answer. What approaches are generally used to monitor antimalarial drug resistance? Yeah, so to do surveillance for antimalarial resistance, we have three main tools. The first is something called treatment efficacy studies. This is where we take a group of individuals and follow them over, that are infected with malaria and follow them over time after after they receive a certain drug treatment to make sure that they're clearing parasites in the correct amount of, in in the expected amount of time. This is really the gold standard, but they're really resource intensive. They take a long time and also without more robust laboratory methods, it can be really hard to parse out whether or not an individual had a treatment failure because that drug wasn't working versus a lot of other factors like potentially reinfection in really high burden regions. The second is something called in vitro assays, where we take field-derived parasite isolates and culture them in the lab, expose them to a particular drug, and see basically what happens in the lab. Those are also quite resource intensive, and they're really hard to standardize. I'm in the third option, and that's and this is really in large part thanks to the previous two that I just mentioned, is to look for molecular markers of drug resistance. These are usually single nucleotide polymorphisms or singular mutations or other changes to the parasite genome that can be used as correlates of, resist of drug resistance at the population level. And these markers can be re really easily and rapidly assessed. And so they're really a preferred tool to do widespread surveillance for drug resistance, particularly at large regional or even continental scales. However, a final note there is in a previous study that we actually published in The Lancet Microbe, in a scoping review, we found that the current state of molecular surveillance data really doesn't capture the temporal and geographic variability that would be needed to do effective surveillance. And so we really continue to need more surveillance and more data, especially in regions where there aren't any. That's great. Thank you. So in your study, you use a different approach. So you aim to assess whether an approach called xenomonitoring could be used for antimalarial drug resistance surveillance. What does this method entail and what are its potential advantages over the other approaches you've already mentioned? Yeah, thank you. So xenomonitoring, also known by some in this research community as xenosurveillance, is the use of blood-feeding arthropods to sample pathogens in human blood. So basically, this approach has a number of potential advantages over more traditional surveillance methods. So mosquitoes feed on and are thereby taking samples of our blood. Um, in really endemic, in, in, in malaria endemic areas, this blood often contains malaria parasites, and we can detect genetic signatures of those parasites for over 24 hours after a mosquito has fed on our blood within that mosquito blood meal. Uh, so this approach takes advantage of natural feeding behaviors, particularly for um, anthropophilic or human-loving vectors like Anopheles gambiae, which is the primary malaria vector found in sub-Saharan Africa, and also at our study site in Burkina Faso. And because we're testing mosquitoes and not humans, this approach is not invasive, right? It doesn't require finger pricks or blood draws, um, I guess, except insofar as the mosquito doing that work, but on a very small scale. And it requires a lot less regulatory hurdles, and it's easier to perform in remote locations. 
Whereas other more resource intensive work like treatment efficacy studies can be a lot harder to do in those kinds of regions because of a lack of research infrastructure. Um, it also can be really efficient in that it's very easy to collect mosquitoes if they're available and most health ministries already have vector vision divisions. And finally, this is one health tool for surveillance because examining mosquitoes can shed light on a lot of different other important factors related to a vector-borne disease transmission, like what mosquitoes are present in the area or how often those mosquitoes bite humans, as well as what other kinds of animals perhaps those mosquitoes are biting. Sounds like a very valuable tool. So now that you've, we've covered the background information, could you describe the, your actual study to us? Sure, yeah. Uh, so we were really motivated by this potential utility of xenomonitoring to do, to do the work of surveying for drug resistance for antimalarial drugs. And we were motivated by the question, can sampling of these blood-fed mosquitoes improve efficiency and coverage of surveillance efforts, but also in what transmission settings and at what spatial scales? So we basically hypothesized that if we collect a bunch of samples of human blood and a bunch of blood-fed mosquitoes, that at when we aggregate those samples to, say, the scale of a village, that we would expect that the proportion of drug-resistant mutations in either of those groups to be approximately equal. Our secondary hypothesis was that blood-fed mosquito sample collection would be acceptable to community members and efficient, particularly in regions of endemic malaria transmission. So we were working in a study site in a region of Burkina Faso in the southwest in a village called Bama, which is about 30 kilometers west of Bobojilaso, the second largest city in Burkina. Um, it's a rice growing region and it has seasonal malaria transmission. We worked in Burkina for a lot of different reasons, which maybe I'll get to in a little bit, but it is from the perspective of malaria, it has the sixth highest burden of malaria in the world. And so it's a really important place to, to be thinking about doing better surveillance and monitoring um, malaria burdened communities. So for the study itself, we conducted three cross-sectional surveys. The first was during the rainy season in October of 2018, then the following dry season in March and April of 2019, and the following rainy season the next year. And we enrolled households in our study proportional to the size of these different sub-villages within our study region, and then collected two types of samples, as I mentioned. So first, we collected blood from consenting individuals using finger pricks, and we stored that blood on filter paper. And we did that for everyone residing in our enrolled households. And then on the same, in the same household on the same day, we used instruments called insectazookas to vacuum up mosquitoes from the walls and ceilings of people's homes very early in the morning within the same rooms where our study participants slept overnight. We then sorted out the female blood-fed Anopheline mosquitoes and took their blood-fed midguts and squashed them onto filter paper where those nucleic acids could be stored until a later time where we could analyze them in the lab. 
And then once those samples got to the lab, we extracted DNA. We looked for samples that were infected with Plasmodium falciparum or the parasite that causes malaria in our study region. We looked for how many different strains of malaria were circulating in any given infected sample. And finally, we genotyped each sample, so both humans and mosquitoes, for two different drug resistance mutations, PFNDR1 and PFCRT. And I'll note that these two drug, sorry, those, and those are the genes, and we're looking for particular mutations within those genes. Sorry, these genes affect the susceptibility to the partner drugs used in our study region when we're thinking about ACTs. And so the last thing that we did after all of that was we tried to compare, we compared the frequency of molecular markers of drug resistance between humans and mosquito blood meals, aggregated at different scales. So aggregated at the household level, the sub-village level, and the village level. And our study was is a little bit unique in that it was designed and powered to assess statistical equivalence rather than a large majority of scientific work that's looking for statistical difference. And so what we mean by that is that we had to get a large enough sample size to say that if the frequencies were within approximately 10% of one another, so say the frequency of a mutation in mosquitoes was 10% and in humans it was 15%, given a large enough sample size, we would say that those two proportions are equivalent. And the last thing that we had to do was also account for the fact that we're working in a really high burden region. And so our samples are infected with more than one malaria strain at a given time, which really complicates our assessment. And so to do that, we had to use a statistical maximum likelihood estimation method developed by Lucy O'Kell and her team at Imperial College London, basically to adjust for the fact that we're seeing a lot of different strains of malaria in any given sample. And, and what were your main findings from this really complex study? <laughs> yeah, basically, we had a few main findings. So the first was just very briefly, we, when looking just at how many samples were infected with malaria, we found that the proportion decreased over time in humans. So basically, the burden of malaria in the study region over this year and a half decreased in humans from about 50% to about 25%. We're not exactly sure why that happened. And it looks like it's not a consistent finding across. It's not, it looks like it's not quite a true decrease in prevalence in a like longitudinal way. But what we found was that the proportion of infected blood meals in mosquitoes actually remained a lot more constant between 15 and 20%. So we think that this is interesting and potentially suggestive of the utility of xenomonitoring. Um, because it can be, because perhaps mosquito blend meals can, can be used despite annual or seasonal fluctuations in malaria prevalence in humans. And for our primary question on the question of whether or not mosquitoes can be used to assess drug resistance, we found that molecular markers of drug resistance in mosquitoes and in humans exhibited similar temporal trends over time, which was really exciting. However, based on this sort of 10% margin of equivalence, we, we did not see that frequencies were statistically equivalent in all scenarios. And so out of the six comparisons, three for each marker over the three cross-sectional surveys, we found that these fre frequencies between humans and mosquitoes were equivalent in about half of scenarios and not equivalent in the other half. 
But one aspect of the study, which we thought was really exciting, is that although we were looking for correlation between sam- between humans and mosquitoes, and that's the ideal result from a from the perspective of surveillance, the presence of meaningful differences between humans and mosquitoes is also actually really interesting and informative. And we really found that to be true for one particular marker for PFCRT, particularly in the first two surveys where we found that that marker that marker was circulating at a much higher prevalence in humans and in mosquitoes than later on. And so to account for this, we conducted a bunch of different theoretical simulations to try to consider the impact of mosquito feeding behaviors that could be impacting our results, including the fact that mosquitoes may feed multiple times on different individuals over the course of a single feeding session, and that they might prefer to feed on a minority of specific individuals. This is known as preferential feeding. And basically what we found is that for markers circulating at higher frequencies like PFCRT, as I mentioned, this, these feeding behaviors may help explain why we saw higher frequencies in mosquitoes compared to humans. Um, and on the flip side, for, mis- for markers that are rarer or less common, human and mosquito mutation frequencies were much more similar. So this is indicative of the fact that this surveillance tool might be actually useful for markers that are circulating at much lower frequencies or emerging markers of drug resistance. That's really interesting. So based on these results, what what are the main implications of your study? And I mean, you've mentioned that you think that some for some purposes, xenomonitoring could be useful, but could you re- reiterate these, uh, these aspects? Do you think that it could actually be used for drug-resistant surveillance? And would it be under specific circumstances? And would it, be need, would it need to be potentially complemented by other approaches? Yes, thank you for that question. And I think that our team definitely feel, I think we all feel that this is a potential really helpful com- tool that will be complementary to standard surveillance efforts. But very rarely would we argue that it should replace standard surveillance efforts. So in terms of our implications, we found that, um, like I mentioned, mosquito blood meals showed similar temporal trends in prevalence as those seen in humans. Although those trends, all at, however, those frequencies over time weren't always exactly equivalent. And so I think some of the work that we need to do moving forward is decide how much of a difference is acceptable from a surveillance standpoint between humans and mosquitoes. When is that difference, when is that threshold clinically relevant? And that's something that I think the malaria community generally struggles a little bit with when we think about these correlates of drug resistance, because although they're really powerful tools, they aren't always directly linked to treatment outcomes. Um, Like I mentioned, xenosurveillance might be more useful for markers circulating at really low frequencies, but also we found that, sorry, xenosurveillance or xenomonitoring is, is acceptable and efficient in 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 the community that we were working with. And it could also provide data on insecticide resistance, mosquito populations, local drug resistance dynamics. And so I think we we feel that this xenomonitoring is a really important complementary tool and one that is, is, yeah, is more efficient perhaps and 
certainly ex accepted by community members. And so I think all of this combined, we feel that it could be a useful tool to do somewhat more of a one-stop shop for surveillance in thinking about many different aspects of malaria transmission, where drug resistance is one of multiple metrics that we're assessing. That's great. Now, slightly changing direction on the questions. I'm, I'm interested in the logistical challenges that you encountered during your study, if any, and how these were overcome and whether you think such challenges could affect future implementation of xenomonitoring. Yeah, thank you so much for that question. I, we're really grateful for it because I think all tools in our toolbox to, to fight malaria, we want to be transparent about the different strengths and limitations of this approach. I'll start with maybe the least interesting ones, which are the laboratory challenges, but perhaps most important, which is that mos mosquitoes, when they feed on humans, they take up only a very small amount of blood, perhaps two to three microliters. And that's compared to what is theoretically an unlimited or much larger amount of blood that could be could be collected from humans. And so you're working with really small samples in terms of volume. And also in those samples, the parasite density, so the number of parasites in a given microliter of blood, is very likely lower in mosquitoes than in humans. However, it's notable that this is a tool to do community surveillance whereas the vast majority of drug-resistant surveillance happens at the clinic level, which isn't necessarily representative of what's going on in the community. And so when we're thinking about doing community-level surveillance, we're always going to be working with samples that have lower parasite densities than those individuals that are showing up to the clinic. Um, and so in our paper, in the supplementary materials, we actually include a section that acknowledges some of the limitations some of the logistical, but particularly the laboratory limitations of our work. And we suggest various approaches to try to maximize the utility of these very small samples. In terms of other challenges, I guess we can think about two other, two other themes. The first is community engagement, and the second is entomological facilities and expertise. So for on the side of community engagement, we, as I mentioned, we did find that the vast majority of participants were really comfortable with these kinds of activities. And many, if not most, preferred azido monitoring, so the collection of mosquitoes, blood fed mosquitoes, to actual finger pricks. And that's in part because our, our instruments, the insectazookas, removed all the mosquitoes from individuals' homes. However, for those that actually tended to prefer finger pricks, one thing that we found interesting was that our study participants like the idea of finger pricks leading to an immediate malaria diagnosis. However, this is a false equivalence in that the collection of dried blood spots often doesn't entail using rapid diagnostic tests that would provide an individual with a confirmation of, a malaria, of malaria. So I think that's an interesting example where when we asked, when we asked about an individual's preference, it's, I think, an important note on how to frame questions and research aims appropriately and informing communities about the research itself and the goals of those research and the goals of that research. And we also worked in a community that has a really longstanding partnership with our research institute, with our local research institute based in Burkina Faso, IRSS. 
And these individuals are really frequently exposed to ongoing malaria research and control activities. And so even though our community felt really comfortable with xenomonitoring, I think we definitely need to be thinking about that the generalizability of that finding at a much larger scale. And then in terms of entomological facilities and expertise, I think that this is a question we often get, which is how easy is it to do this work? And I think on one hand, we worked with an amazingly talented entomology team. And that involved work on site using a folded table, folding table and a shaded area near our study site where blood meals were processed, as well as transport of the samples back to more sophisticated insectaries much further away. But I think what's worth noting here is that entomology team included both formal card-carrying entomologists, as well as local community members that were trained as entomology technicians. And both were crucial for the study's success. And we think that this is a replicable model that could ensure implementation of xenomonitoring in other regions. So in other words, we found that community members could be relatively easily trained to carry out mosquito aspirations or vacuuming, as well as the um, processing of those samples. Thank you. Yeah, interactions with the local community are really fascinating. It's great that you could actually involve them in not only in participating in the study, but actually doing some of the work in a way that made them probably more aware of, of the actual study and its goals. As you mentioned, these interactions with local communities, could you also tell us a little bit more about how this international and multidisciplinary collaboration came about? Yeah, thank you so much for that question. So we think that the origins of this work involved a bit of serendipity made possible by many years of international collaborations across lots of different faculty and mentors and scientists and really brought together vector biologists, entomologists, clinical malariologists, and parasitologists. So our lab at Yale had been conducting studies on drug efficacy, pharmacology resistance for, for over a decade. And we, we'd been collaborating with Professor Wadrago and Dr. Somme, who are experts in malaria parasitology and resistance. Um, and then at the same time, our colleague, Professor Foy, a vector biologist at Colorado State University, had been working for a long time with Professor Debire, an entomology expert in Burkina. And he, and those two, doctors Foy and Debire, had done initial studies using xenomonitoring for detecting emerging pathogens. And so this idea for using mosquitoes for malaria resistance surveillance sprung from this very rich and multidisciplinary collaboration. And I think that this work really wouldn't have been possible without the group of multidisciplinary scientists in Burkina Faso, and particularly a really longstanding vector, vector research and parasitology groups that interact really closely with the Ministry of Health. And we think that's really important in that any surveillance method that we study has to be implementable by local public health entities. Yeah, so thank you very much for all the, all of the, this explanation about the entire study. It's all very interesting, really. I'd just like to finish off by asking you what the future lines of research are, what you're going to be working on and your colleagues, either to answer questions that are left open 
by by your study or or journey in regards to antimalarial drug resistance? Yes, thank you. So we think that there are several next steps in the work. Some are direct expansions of this study and then others that are related to improving surveillance more broadly. So for this study itself, we're hoping to expand to other endemic settings and include other vector species. So we already collected samples from humans and mosquitoes at another study site in Burkina, and one of our Burkina Bay colleagues is working on those samples for his dissertation. We'd also like to expand beyond those two sites to assess particularly perennial settings of transmission and low endemic settings for transmission, because the utility of xenosurveillance is going to change we imagine it's going to be very different in settings with very different mosquito populations as well as the abundance of those mosquito populations. We're also looking at additional drug-resistance loci or areas where we can identify important mutations. And we're looking, we're interested in thinking about the differences that arise in frequencies between mosquitoes and humans for specific drug-resistant mutations or markers and trying to understand some of the bases from some of the bases of those differences, including transmission dynamics, fitness costs, or other factors that we haven't determined yet. But we know what we know for sure is that we need to be thinking out of the box for surveillance because what we're doing now isn't sufficient, um, as we've documented before, and we're heading into a very precarious time for antimalarial resistance and the treatment of malaria in sub-Saharan Africa. And we feel confident that xenosurveillance can be in a tool that is complementary when we're thinking about doing more holistic surveillance, monitoring multiple aspects of malaria control. And we hope that this is a tool in a larger toolbox to be considered in surveillance plans moving forward. Great. Thank you so much for joining us and answering so comprehensively to all of, uh, all of my questions. Yes, thank you. You can read Dr. Ehrlich's research online now at thelancet.com. Thank you to Dr. Ehrlich and thank you for listening to this episode of In Conversation With. Remember, you can subscribe to In Conversation With The Lancet Microbe wherever you usually get your podcasts.